In our last time together, we considered, as we were looking at the book of Esther, the fourth chapter of the book, and I'd like us, God willing, to look at chapter 5 this evening. So let us now, at this point, read this chapter. Esther, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Jerish. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then King Haman, then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew 
sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Jerish, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. We come this evening to the fifth, fifth chapter of the book of Esther. And we come, before we come to it, I'd like to say a word or two about Elijah, a prophet some years earlier. You'll perhaps remember the lowest point in Elijah's life. It was when God taught him a very, very important lesson. How did God teach Elijah that lesson? He sent a strong, mighty wind. But the lesson wasn't in that. He sent an earthquake, terrifying and shaking all. But the lesson wasn't in that. He sent a very unusual fire. But the lesson wasn't in that. God spoke to Elijah in a low whisper, or in the version that many of us are used to, in a still, small voice. And in a sense, we're being told there that most of God's working isn't spectacular. It isn't astonishing or startling. Most of God's work is unobtrusive. It's behind the scenes, but it's very real and utterly powerful. And that's illustrated again for us here in chapter 5. There's nothing really dramatic in this chapter. As we've seen in all the chapters so far, God doesn't occur. He's not mentioned. He has nothing to say. He's left out. The people seem to be acting freely according to their own ideas and their own temperaments. And yet as we look at it, we now see that God was choreographing everything to the tiniest detail. And God is using everything that we read of here to bring about the precise result that he has planned. And that's the same for our own lives. This chapter hinges round someone preparing for an interview with the king, Esther, to plead for the life of the Jews. That will happen later in the week. It's a tense, momentous, frightening situation. This chapter, I think, is in two parts. And then finally, I want us to look at some ways in which it is applied to us. We'll see first the exercise, and then the expo exposure, and then finally, 
and encouragement. So first of all, verses 1 to 8, an exercise of insight. An exercise of insight. Esther's in a very dangerous position. She's planning to enter the court of the king without any invitation. And that was a very dangerous thing to do. They've been sent to us or have lived through ancient history freezes, uh, little uh, lines of carving from the old walls and temples. And we can see in them a king on a throne. And just beside him is a soldier with an axe. And that's the picture of the king's power and his frightening position. It's hard to go to the king. Be careful. There's an axe beside him. He need just nod his head and the axe will be down upon you. But Esther is determined to go for the sake of her people. She's going to act wisely. But look at the first phrase in the chapter. On the third day. This, I think, joins us with chapter 4, verse 16, where Esther is speaking to Mordecai. And listen to what she says to him. Gather all the Jews in Susa and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So now we're told on the third day. They've been fasting. They've been praying. They've been looking to God. And now Esther steps forward. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, fasting is often associated with prayer. And so we have here Three days and nights of intense prayer. And after that prayer, Esther's going to act. The wisdom which Esther's going to show will come from God and from the way in which he has guided her. Again in verse 1, Esther put on her royal robes. The king hasn't seen her for a few weeks. She's reminding him that she is the queen, that she is his wife. Perhaps also knowing how these royal robes add to her attractiveness. And King Ahasuerus is very, very favorable. He holds out his golden scepter, the sign of acceptance and favor. And Esther, we're told in verse 2, approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king holds out the, the, the scepter. 
And Esther approaches it and touches it. Meek submission. Acceptable. She's brought back to the king. He's kind to her. He's friendly. All looks good. And in verse 3, the king meets, makes an amazing offer. What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. Well, now, does he mean that? We saw a few studies ago the enormous size of the, of the kingdom at that time. Was he going to hand over half the kingdom to this young wife? I think it was not to be taken seriously. It's quite interestingly that you find Herod and his stepdaughter using almost exact the same words. Mark 6.23 Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So perhaps it was a phrase that was used between the rulers and their people. And yet the king is being generous. He's being open-ended. I will give you whatever you want me to do. And very surprisingly, Esther does not seize that opportunity. Instead, she asks Ahasuerus and Haman to come to a feast that day. He's offered her his empire. He's offered her wealth. He's offered her anything that you can imagine. And she says, well, could you come and have a feast with me? And then verse 6. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king right now is in a good mood. Verse 3, he talks about Queen Esther. Verse 5 she has become Esther. Very close. Very near. And he makes the offer again. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. That's an ideal moment. She has given them a beautiful meal. He's already given her a promise. She hasn't taken it. After this beautiful meal, he gives her the promise again. What's she going to say? What's she going to take? Esther seems about to ask. Listen to her. My wish and my request is. And we're waiting for it. What's she going to ask for? That if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, you will come to another feast tomorrow. That was her wish. That was her desire. Tomorrow. Why is Esther doing this? Perhaps it's a God-given instinct to wait. Or perhaps it's to make her husband frustrated with Haman. Haman's standing here beside me. There's just me and my wife and Haman. And I, if Haman wasn't here... I can't help thinking that she and I could have a very closer, warmer relationship than she does now, asking me to come for another meal tomorrow. Perhaps, we don't know. We don't know. But, she says, the feast I have prepared for the king. Esther has maneuvered her husband 
into a position where he's almost compelled to grant her request. Twice he has offered this. And it's the condition of, her, of them coming the next day. Verse 8. Tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And it's now his will for her to make a request. Verse 8. If it please the king to fulfill my request. You want me to make this request. You want me to ask you. You want me so that I can answer your prayer. A strange, a fascinating position. And it, it, we are, it also must be time, if we're thinking of Haman, it must be time for Haman's pride to swell to insane heights. We're told in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But Haman is surely filled with pride. There's the emperor, there's his wife, and then there's me, and there's nobody else. And she had us for a meal today, and she's inviting us for a meal tomorrow. Esther is acting subtly. She's acting astutely. She's got a great discernment, a great knowledge of people. She's been praying for three days. And I believe, friends, that this is here an example for us. I think that as believers, we often overlook the need for practical wisdom, for common sense. We become mysterious. We become lifted up about the amazing, wonderful things we're going to do. And our common sense seems to have vanished. We're living in a fallen world. We're surrounded by enemies. And too often, what we want to do is impulsive. It's naive. It's even foolish. Foolish from good people. A blunder into difficult situations. Clumsy in interpersonal relationships. You want to bring the gospel to someone you admire and like and they, they don't know the gospel, and it's good for you to do that. But as you start doing it, it seems that your common sense has gone. And because this is an important thing to do, you do it without considering it and thinking about it and praying over it. A direct confrontation isn't always the wisest course. Sometimes, it's more effective in the long run to be subtle, to be weak, to, to be meek. Many of us remember a Christian wife in our church. She was coming. She'd come to faith. She'd grown in Christ. And her husband was not yet a Christian. 
But he brought her to church every Lord's Day. And then he came back in the church in the car and waited for her. And she loved talking with people. She enjoyed Christian fellowship. But Lorna and I thought about it. And Lorna said to her, Look, your husband's good. He brings you to church. He collects you. He's not complaining. He's not quarreling. But is it wise to keep him sitting in that car for 25 minutes or half an hour after church every Lord's Day? In the long run, would it not be wiser after a few minutes to go out and your husband will take you home? I don't know what you think. But we do think that in his time, that man before his death came to trust in Christ. Her wife, his wife didn't rush it. She didn't tramp over him. She didn't force it. She had a wisdom in what she was doing. And I think it's the sort of thing we, we need to be able to do. You remember Peter, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Speaking to the Christian wives of unbelievers. Be subject to your own husbands. One without a word. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. They'll be one. They'll be one. Be patient with them. In, John we, in James we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Esther is shown a degree of wisdom in the way in which she's handling her husband. And that surely comes from the enabling of God. And there's a need today for wise Christians. Wise Christians. Secondly, let's look in verses 9 to 14 at the exposure of an idol. The exposure of an idol. Is anything more important to you than God. We're looking here at what is being taught in these verses. And it's not just for other times and places. You remember first century Athens. Our city is full of idols. You remember how at the end of the New Testament, the final verse of first John Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do I identify if I'm worshipping an idol? How do I identify if I'm worshipping an idol? What is it that makes me very happy? That makes me very unhappy? That makes me too angry? Consider Haman for a few moments. He has been elated, built up beyond measure at a double invitation to an intimate dinner for three at the palace. And we're told in verse 9, 
that he went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And then it continues, verses 9 and 10. Haman sent and brought his friends and his wife and recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all promotions with which the king had ordered him, and how he had advanced him above officials and servants of the king. Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. He's boasting. He's boasting. He's childless, silly boasting. It was once said of Benjamin Disraeli, he was a, a self-made man who worships his creator. And that was true of this man here, a self-made man who worships his creator. His idol is I, self, status. And when that idol is stroked or fed, he's extremely happy. Too many like that in the church. And even more tellingly, we see what happens when the idol threatens him. Verse 9, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath and Mord and against Mordecai. And again in verse 13, where he's speaking to his family about the blessing and the riches and all that's been poured upon him. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. His wife and his friends encourage him to build the gallows, to have Mordecai hanged. And he wants to do this. He's planning to do it. And he went out that day joyful. But we're not to know that that's to be the last such day in his life. And his happiness is to end. And his progress is to be destroyed. Happiness from idols is built on false hopes. And that's a warning to each of us. What makes me happy? What makes me miserable? What makes me angry? It's significant. Where is your treasure? Think of all you have in Christ. It's in Christ our true treasure is. We've looked then at these two items in the, in the passage. But I want to apply it for a few moments in ending. The encouragement, the encouragement of an invitation. The encouragement of an invitation. Throughout this book, we have been looking beyond Esther. Esther. We've been looking through her. We've been looking for something higher, truer, to the God who is never mentioned, and yet he's certainly present and active. And we learn, as we see this book, we learn from its parallels. 
but we can also learn from its differences. And I want us to look just for a time this evening at what God is saying to us through the contrasts, through the differences here in this chapter. And I want briefly to mention six. Six. What are the differences between Esther and you and me? Number one, Esther is coming to a proud, cruel, unstable man. She's coming to someone in whom no one could have any real confidence to ask her favours from this wicked, awful man. He's her husband. And history tells us of the slaughter of his life. You and I are coming to our loving Father, to the God of all grace, who delights in mercy. Esther had the one she came to. You and I, if we're in Christ, have the one we come to. And it's very different. Secondly, Esther was coming uninvited. She had to try and put herself out to see if she could create an invitation. And she didn't know whether there would be any invitation. And you and I as Christians can come as often as we like. And every time we come, we are warmly, lovingly invited. Our Father wants us to come. Our Father delights in hearing us. And in responding to us. Thirdly, Esther has the law of this empire against her. I'll not go into the details of all that, but she has it against her. We have so many promises for us. So many promises for us. Fourthly, what Esther was asking was very difficult for her husband to grant. He had to change the law of the Medes and Persians. His main man had to lose his face. He would also lose a huge amount, talents of silver. All of this and Esther would have to reveal her Jewish identity, which she'd been hiding for five years. This was costly. This was very, very demanding. But by contrast, what we are asking is easy for God our Father and the God of our Father of all power to grant. Especially now that his son, our Savior, has died to enable us to come and to be answered. 
Fifthly, Esther had no friend to intercede for her or speak on her behalf. Not a single one. The king's favorite hated her and he was her enemy. We have an advocate, the son with whom the father is so very, very well pleased. And lastly, I noticed Esther needed to flatter. She needed to make repeated associations, invitations. She needed to bend over backwards to manipulate this man. We are to ask as simply as a little child. As Paul says to the Philippians, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. So friends, what have we done with this privilege? This inviting, this welcoming, this wonderful, generous privilege. To come to our Father and to seek from Him all we need and to hold our lives open in His presence and keep asking Him. And He delights in seeing us coming. He delights in hearing our voices through Christ. He delights in, in wiping away our tears. He delights in putting a father's arm around us. He delights in upholding us from day to day. And haven't we seen it in the past few years? Haven't we seen the kind father with some of our beloved in the church and their needs and our love for them, but only a reflection of his love for them. That's Christianity. We read this in Hebrews. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, how we thank you for this rich invitation, the throne of grace, where grace is seen and known and experienced, where it floods from you through Christ to us, your people. And we pray, Lord, that for each one of us today, this evening, we may know your mercy and your grace to help in time of need. And we pray for all those whom we love and who need this. We pray that it will be given to them, continue to be given to them from day to day. And so, Father, help us all to rejoice in you and rest in you and live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.